Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Follower Podcast. This is episode number 11. Can you believe it? 11 episodes. And um, I'm actually coming to you from St. Anne's College in Hilton. Uh, Been here for a week. We've been um, taking classes and having messages and just hanging out with the girls here. And the school's uh, been so great at hosting us. And um, yeah, so it's just been a really, really good time. We've been, the theme of the week has been shift. And we've been talking about what it means to move from religion to relationship. Uh, This idea of um, moving into actual knowledge of Jesus and who he is and and what that means for our lives, rather than just a system um, that tries to, I guess, maybe control him in some ways and and make God only a philosophy. So it's been um, it's been a really good week. There's been a lot going on, and always grateful to be here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series called "A Death in the Family and Other Good News." And if you've been following along, we've gone through two episodes already. Um, the first episode was called uh, Godness is Goodness, and last week's episode was The Power of Is. And in both cases, what we've really been trying to do is prepare our hearts or position ourselves to receive the gospel for what it is when uh, when we actually do talk about it um, and focus in on that particular message. And this week, we're going to do more positioning, a third positioning, if you will, uh, the theme of the week uh, for this podcast episode is This is Human. And I, I had a thought about how I could describe these positioning elements. It's it's almost as if the the gospel, right, is um, it's like this massive dam of water on the other side of a dam wall. It, it's got so much in it and has so many implications when we start to really understand it that when it breaks open in our lives, it's almost helpful to have pre-dug some trenches for that water to flow into so that we can get maximum effect, um, so that we're ready to go really where the momentum of the gospel wants to take us. And so that's really what we're doing now. We're digging a few trenches in our minds and in our hearts and in our expectations so that when when we really look at this idea of what the gospel is and therefore what it means for us, uh, it can flow somewhere. So... We looked at the goodness of Godness and uh, the power of is, and there we really broke down the good news element uh, of of the series. And this week we want to look at um, the rest of the death in the family and other good news. What are we talking about? So to kick us off, have you ever considered, and this is the question I have for us as our opening thought, have you ever considered how much confusion the ambiguity of the word human creates? Because on one hand, we use it as this um, as an excuse for our shortcomings. As in, when we mess up, we, we say things like, don't judge me, I'm only human. But then on the other hand, we use it to describe those of us who live into the best versions of uh, themselves and of us. As in, uh, that person is a humanitarian. Okay. So the question I'm asking is, which is it? Is being a human a good thing or is it a bad thing? And what exactly does it mean to be human and what if anything does being human have to do with the gospel uh, now believe it or not when you start to speak to people about the gospel and about faith in different spaces these are actually some common questions that come up and the questions themselves reveal so much of what 
what's gone wrong with our understanding of the gospel. Because when you speak to people about Christianity, about the gospel, so many describe it as this issue concerning a certain religious minority, those people over there in that culture or that group of things. And even within that minority, there's this... um, there's this understanding that the gospel is generally a private issue. It's, it's private in its nature, concerned with me and God's plan for my life, or me and my sin, or me and my forgiveness from Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And the primary issue is that I will go to heaven when I die. Um, these ideas were kind of made famous by a guy called Bill Brighter a while ago in something called the Four Spiritual Laws. And uh, these spiritual laws read like this, and it's just very interesting because it's so indicative of the times that we live in right now. Um, first of all, you need to know that God loves you and created you to know Him personally. Then you need to know that people are sinful and separated from God, and therefore we cannot go know God personally and experience His love. And through Jesus, we can know God personally and experience His love. And then the final spiritual law is that we must individually receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Then we can know God and personally experience His love. So there's that same phrase that kind of flows through all four of these spiritual laws, is that we would know God personally and experience His love. And these influences of personal knowing and personal experience have influence so much of the thought and practice around our understanding of what the gospel is and how we communicate it. And and they have actually started to reveal the product of their worldview in the kind of individualistic and often superficial Christianity that these ideas have produced. Now, what am I not saying? I'm not saying that God's uh, love for us or the gospel doesn't have personal implication. I think the gospel is profoundly personal in its nature. Um, In fact, Jesus' intention is nothing less than a complete renovation of the human heart. And the ability to have a personal relationship with God is actually one of the great miracles of the gospel. But I think the issue is the context into which this idea falls and how different it is from the context in which it was originally communicated. Because the context of, of modern contemporary Christianity is hyper-individualized. Um, and so it's actually far more a product of the increasingly individualistic culture around us, the one in which we live, than it is a product of anything we find in the Bible. Because the original context of the Bible was so profoundly communal that any promise that God would know us personally would, be have, would have been understood within a corporate context and understanding. But that's not true for us anymore. In fact, I, I would actually go far as to say that our our spirituality in contemporary times, in, in, in modern times, has become so profoundly individual um, that it's actually become unhelpful. I will go for, so far as to say that any spirituality that is only about knowing God personally, in the sense that it is uh, private in nature, is actually weak at best and inauthentic at worst. Truly knowing God personally and experiencing God's love is actually inextricably linked and and leads us beyond ourselves to the kind of authentic spirituality that can hardly exist in any meaningful sense when it's divorced from corporate context, uh, this, this corporate context in which all spirituality is actually designed to flourish. So, so what I'm saying there is that 
If you take the us out of Christianity, you actually take the Christianity out of Christianity. It, one, one of my favorite quotes, and I, I think I've, I've probably used it on this show before, is, um, you know, Desmond Tutu's, my humanity is tied up in your humanity because we can only truly be human together. Whatever God is doing, he's doing in an us. And yet our society is profoundly pushing us toward a me. And when we take uh, the Christian gospel and then we superimpose it onto a me culture, we actually lose the potency of what the gospel is. In fact, when we minimize Jesus in the gospel to some kind of totem that is only concerned with the issues affecting the microcosm of my life or my emotions or my challenges and desires, we actually create a very small God. And, and this God, instead of healing us and leading us beyond the limitations of our own perspectives, he becomes a product of those perspectives. Until without knowing it, we actually end up worshiping a reflection of ourselves with the label of Jesus on it. It's what Tony Campolo describes when, when he says, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor. And, and this is a very dangerous place to be for anyone who truly desires to be liberated from the confinements of their own selfish dysfunction. It's the kind of privatized gospel that creates space for warped versions of Jesus in which apartheid and the, and the Ku Klux Klan and the Crusades and slavery and all these other kinds of atrocities can actually be um, facilitated in the name of God and be inflicted on the world. That's where the end of this idea goes. The smaller our God gets and the more privatized our, our idea of God and the gospel becomes, the more dangerous that can actually be because it becomes more and more an extension of our own brokenness. Hyper-individualized spirituality, it's not only philosophically flawed, it's ultimately dangerous and actually works in opposition to the gospel and the work that God wants to achieve in our lives. And this is why, just as we've done with all the other ideas so far, we have to correctly position our hearts if we hope to receive the gospel message. And, and this positioning involves the extension of our expectation, of our gaze, beyond just the personal implications of what the gospel will mean for me in my life. Uh, whether that is happiness, healing, or heaven or hell. And we have to extend those expectations to what it must mean for us and our lives. See, this death that is good news, which lies at the heart of the Christian gospel, it's not only good news for me, it's good news for the whole family. And which family are we talking about? Well, we're not just talking about my family or your family. We're not, those boundary lines, they're far too small. We're not even talking about the families across the road or the families in my neighborhood or, or the family that looks like me or speaks like me, has the same language as me or the same skin color as me or lives in the same country as me. All these boundary lines are far too small when we talk about the family for whom this gospel is good news. And actually, when we think about it, if we limit the implications of this good news, of this death, to such a small circle of people, the kinds of people that we only have things in common with, what we actually do is we minimize the significance of the one who died himself. C.S. Lewis says, you can tell the quality of a spring by how many different kinds of people come to drink at its waters. And when we talk about a death in the family and we consider who did the dying, we have to ask how, if that person is who he says he is, then how wide is the reach 
uh, and impact of that particular death. And surely the, the reach and impact of that particular death must go beyond me and my personal relationship with Jesus or us uh, in, in the personal sense, uh, me and the people who think like me and act like me and our personal relationships with Jesus. Surely uh, if that's the person who did the dying, then the reach has got to go far beyond um, us. See, the gospel is such good news, and it is so powerful in its implication that it actually obliterates every boundary line that we would use to keep ourselves separated. And it has extended the inclusive embrace of family as far as that reach could possibly go. It moves beyond gender, beyond race, beyond social standing, beyond particular ethnic background. Whatever the gospel is, we have to prepare ourselves to, to understand that one of its most profound and transformative effects is the elimination of dividing categories such as slave and free or male and female or Jew and Gentile and the creation of a new kind of people who are one in Jesus. It is this new family that's been now created called humanity. And unless we're willing to follow the gospel to the profound conclusion of this new humanity and move beyond the confines of our own prejudice, what ends up happening is that we'll find ourselves constantly at odds with the very faith we claim to believe in. See, there, there are, and I, I know this may be sensitive, but we need to think about this. There are no false categories of discipleship in which we can claim to follow Jesus and still celebrate and cultivate the dysfunctions of racism, sexism, or classism. These are exactly the things from which God actually seeks to save us. So this brings us back to our question then. If humanity is the, is the family for whom this is good news, what does it mean to be human? What is the nature of this new family? And what does the gospel have to do with it? Now, to answer this question, we actually need to go back to the beginning, or more precisely, to the beginner, which of course requires our acknowledgement that there is, in fact, a beginner, that we aren't just a product of time plus matter plus chance, or some kind of biological accident that just evolved over time, that we have a source, that we are from somewhere or someone, and that this source had an idea for what this family called humanity would actually be when he set it in motion. The implication of this is that humanity is not something that we create or invent for, our, for ourselves in accordance with our own desires, but actually that it's something we discover and then we live into. And thankfully, when we take the time to consult the source, we find that the original blueprint of humanity is far beyond anything we could have conceived for ourselves. What do I mean by that? I mean... If you go the route of inventing your own kind of humanity, you will ultimately sell yourself short because your invention will be limited by your imagination or be limited by your experience or be limited by your knowledge. You'll ultimately be creating a kind of humanity that is far less than its original intention. Because according to the blueprint we find in Genesis 1.27, we read, that the, the original intention of humanity is that we would be created, male and female, in God's own image. The fancy word for this is Imago Dei. It says that, there in Genesis it says that when God created humanity in his own image, he gave us a responsibility of multiplying, 
and then subduing his creation and having dominion over it. In other words, when he created the world and everything in it, God's original blueprint was to give humanity, those who had been made in his image, the task of representing him as ambassadors of his authority in the earth. And then having done all that, God looks at this blueprint, this divinely intended order of things, and he says that it is very good. So whatever we are, we are very good from God's perspective. So the answer to the question is of, of what is humanity, or at least is it what is it supposed to be? The answer is that it's good, and not just good, but very good, and not just very good, but actually, when we live into the fullness of our intended humanity, it, it, we actually become walking outposts for the glory of God himself. And as such, when we are human in its truest sense, we cultivate God's eternal realities right here in the midst of this present moment. So <laughs> I, I don't know what that does to you and how that stirs your heart, but when you read the blueprint, being human is a phenomenal, miraculous, holy thing. And the family of humanity for whom this gospel is such incredibly significant news, when, when that family lives into God's vision of what it should be, that family is powerful and eternal and significant in its nature. So one can understand why some would say that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Now, I know that even as I'm, uh, I'm speaking about this, uh, s- there are some people who may be listening who start to shut down just because I've used Genesis as a foundational perspective for anything. Uh, and, and the common question is, well, hasn't science proven that the world wasn't made in seven days? And what about evolution, et cetera, et cetera? Now, now let me first say I can understand these concerns, and I actually think that they're valid in some senses. Um But I I think that arguing along those lines makes a major out of the minor and a minor out of the major. What I mean by that is that I don't think that the primary gift of the Genesis story lies in trying to figure out when we were created or how long it took us to be created. I actually think the primary issues that this story seeks to address are why we were created. So part of the reason that we've struggled so much with Genesis is because we've been asking when and where and how questions instead of asking why and what questions. As an example, if you think about the story of the fall, uh, there is a story of a serpent and a tree and Adam and Eve and a temptation, and then that temptation leads to a decision which leads to a separation, right? If we ask when and where and how questions of the story, we'll spend the rest of our lives, honestly, just arguing about whether or not there was a snake or a tree or two actual people, or if it was a fruit or an apple, and who ate the apple first, and therefore who's to blame. And we, we'll end up going down these rabbit trails of philosophical um, ideas, which actually are, are secondary issues that never really get to the central point uh, of the narrative and what it's trying to address. If I have a, we ask what and why questions, as in, what does the story have to tell us about the human experience? And why, if humanity was created to carry the image of God, are we all so seemingly broken? Well, then I believe we find arguably one of the most accurate diagnoses of the human condition in recorded literature. Namely, 
that at the heart of our dysfunction is an insistence on replacing God as God with ourselves as God. A belief that we ourselves are in fact God. A desire to reframe truth and good and evil, not as God has has um, intended it, but as we would actually prefer it to be. There is inside of us a lusting after that which is pleasing to the eye and promises the gift of false wisdom. And then as we pursue these lusts, there's a result uh, in shame. And this shame, which we've come to call sin, ultimately separates us from the divine creative force in which we find our true and most potent selves. And there is a death to our true divine humanity. If that doesn't describe what we see in the human condition, not just in your life, but over history, I don't really know what does. It's an incredible insight into what's going on in the human experience. But I love that the story doesn't stop in the garden. I love that God is not done. See, true to God's nature, he does not give up on us. Through a man called Abraham, God goes on to make a covenant, an agreement with a people called Israel, saying that by blessing this man and these people, he would ultimately bless all the nations of the earth, all humanity, this family. That through them would come this person called a Messiah or a Savior. And that he would then reclaim what was lost in the garden. He would restore humanity and invite all people in all places at all times to enter into the gift of his salvation. And this salvation is not only about getting us into heaven when we die because we pray to right prayer. But rather it's a salvation that invites us back to our divine humanity. Back to the family. Back to our identity as those made in the image of God and back to our purpose as image bearers who subdue the earth and have dominion over it in a new creation that's all about God as we human beings cultivate his kingdom now here among us until such time as, as he comes again and brings all things into their full consummation. I mean, that's a story, friends. That's what it means to be human. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Ultimately, uh, if we look at this episode, if you remember nothing else from this one episode, I, I want you to remember this as we position our hearts to receive the gospel next week. It's that if we are to receive this gospel in such a way that has its full effect on us, we must orient our hearts in such a way that we're willing to be led beyond the confines of our own selfishness. And beyond the confines of our own personal salvation story and our personal concern for heaven or hell when we die, we must lift our gaze and expand our expectation with the readiness to recognize that the gospel is good news for our whole family and that that family is called humanity. And that our yes to the gospel, to Jesus, to salvation, is simultaneously and inseparably a yes to return to that human family, to reclaim our image of God for which we were created, to take up our God-given responsibility as ambassadors of his kingdom, of his reality, and to cultivate eternal realities, eternal goodness of peace and justice and mercy and healing right here in the temporary spaces that are filled with anything but those things. The gospel, when we receive it, it's nothing less than a revolution. 
that changes everything we are into everything we were always intended to be. And when we allow it to be anything less than that, when we try and minimize it down to our own personal spirituality that hides away in a room while the world just falls apart, it actually ceases to be the gospel. This good news, this death in a family, it's in a family. And you are in a family. Your personal story, it matters to Jesus, but it's not the only story going on. And it definitely isn't the sum total of the gospel message. I really hope that these thoughts are helpful for you. And I hope that as you spend the rest of this week thinking about these ideas, as we prepare next week to actually look at uh, the day that death died and, and what lies at the center of the gospel message, I pray that, that you would prepare yourself to move beyond the confines of your own preferences. Um, yes, Jesus is, is profoundly interested in you as an individual, but are you as an individual the sum total of his purpose and the sum total of the gospel promise? Absolutely not. Uh, this is about a story that is far broader than this. It's been going on not just for a long time, but actually all of time. It's God's plan, and it's coming to a culmination point in this guy, Jesus. But uh, we are profoundly a part of that as the human family, which he has always had in his mind since the very first moment of time. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. If this has been helpful, as always, please do share, like, uh, suggest. The follow a podcast is a new podcast, and uh, I really believe in its message, and I, and I think it's helping people. I've been having such great feedback from different people, particularly in this series so far. And so we just love to get it into the hands and into the ears of as many people as possible. So we are able to share it and um, and have reviews and, and do all that kind of stuff. It really helps the message of the podcast get out there. Uh, that's all for this week. Until next week when we look at uh, the day that death dies. Get excited. It is going to be a good one. Until then, we'll see you later.